Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome to today's episode. Now, if you are a regular listener, you might have heard the episode a couple of weeks ago called Live from CrimeCon. And like it says on the tin, it was actually recorded live at CrimeCon. If you're looking for that episode in the feed, you can go back. It's episode 13 in season four, released in mid-August, I think it was. As it happened, Justin from the Generation Y podcast was sitting in the audience at the live show. And afterwards, he asked if Catherine and I would like to do a recording together. And so that is where we've landed today. My name's Justin. I'm the host of the Generation Y podcast. We started in 2012, which was kind of before most true crime podcasts. And Aaron and I, we focus on true crime, you know, whether it's unsolved murders, uh, wrongful convictions, or murders where police and law enforcement actually did a great job. And we try to highlight all of those things. We also cover conspiracies and some other weird stuff, but mostly it's true crime. And really our intent is just to educate the audience on how the system more or less really works compared to what you see on Law and & Order and CSI. <laughs> you know that if you were in TV, you'd actually be the equivalent of a silent movie. 2012, that is <laughs> literally silent movie territory in the world of podcasting isn't it yeah there was one other podcast before us and it was true murder he's a guy up in canada and he would interview authors and police officers and stuff on his telephone and he was the only other true crime podcast in existence before us that i know of that is nuts <laughs> i was thinking you so were like you next could... after serial but you were before serial oh years before way before serial <laughs> How is yeah. it different than it was when you first um, started? Is this what you thought you were going to be doing? Absolutely not. I, I like to focus on more positive things these days. But the main difference that I can remember is when Aaron and I first started, we used to get angry emails from people going, are you in law enforcement? Are you an investigator? Are you even part of you know the court systems? If not, shut up. Why are you talking about these things? Wow. And now everyone and their mother and their grandmother has a true crime podcast. So we don't oh, get wow. those kind of feedback <laughs> letters anymore. But in the beginning, people thought like, who are you? Well, you showed them, didn't you? Mm hmm. Yeah. Still here. And burst <laughs> the genre, really, didn't you? Kind of. Kind of did. Pioneer. I have been listening to your guys' podcast, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh. Some, but that's the person. Yeah. 
Well, and, and one download. And you know, if you remember, like when we were at CrimeCon in the UK, it was your guys' session that I was I was sitting there as the probably one of the few Americans in the room listening. Yeah, and nodding, and nodding my head along with you. And there's way more guns in America than there are people. Yeah, there's really very little gun laws yeah. that are are enforced. So. It was interesting to hear. The thing that I loved about that, Justin, was that you completely ignored when I said, leave the questions to the end. And your hand was just like, (laughs) Justin, listen, wait the room. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I could have. And you know what? That took every ounce of my effort to not raise my hand as many times as I wanted to. I have to tell you, Justin, we could have sat in there for two hours easily, I think. Oh, and there were oh, so yeah. many questions. There were so many things to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I was like, okay, this is not the place for me to ask all these questions. <laughs> I'm just going to come up and ask you to come on my show after the fact. <laughs> Sadly, I know you get this a lot, and I'm sure you probably have received a lot of emails and messages, but there are people that are very hardcore about their gun rights, <laughs> very mm-hmm. uh, you know, sensitive about it and have these arguments that the government is coming for your guns and the slippery slope of the laws are going to take all of our guns away. And I yeah. do own guns. I did have a conceal and carry license. I grew up with guns. I was in the military, yet I don't seem to see these same ideals as other people at no point have i ever felt like anyone's coming for my guns ever (laughs) so i'm going to ask you as a gun owner because i am a gun owner what do you think are the best tactics to bring gun owners more heartily into the conversation i mean you may agree with me and if you don't that's okay but it's really a very vocal minority of gun owners that believe that the federal government is coming to take their guns away. Like the federal government can't even collect the taxes they're supposed to collect. What makes them think they're going to collect guns? But where do you think the best tactics might be to have conversations with gun owners and have them look for good solutions? It's funny because I've thought about what are good tactics to lessen gun violence. I've thought about what are tactics to enforce more gun laws in a reasonable fashion. Right. But I never thought about how do you get somebody who is an absolutist, a, a constitutionalist, whatever you want to you know, label mm-hmm. it as, into the conversation. And that's the challenge, right? Because I'm a constitutionalist, right? I'm a lawyer and I'm a firm believer in the Constitution. But that word's been kind of perverted a little bit. It, absolutist, I think, is the right word. But Because I think that are the great ideas. You know, I just wrote this book called How to Talk About Guns with Anyone. And I wrote it because we can't get seem to get people who are on those sides, which I believe are the minority sides, left and right. They won't even come to the table to have a discussion. Yeah, you guys do a really good job just trying to convey the facts and what evidence is out there. But I guess in the United States in today's political atmosphere, People don't care about facts and evidence or science or anything anymore. True. <laughs> um, don't bother me with the facts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and That's so I've, true. I mean, I've tried to 
make a family member believe that there isn't a satanic cabal that's, you know, extracting adrenochrome from children with evidence and facts, but they didn't want to hear it. So, oh my gosh, trying to get someone to believe that, hey, maybe we could pass this law that would help reduce gun violence. That's not even on the table when someone believes that they need their guns to fight a satanic cabal. One of the most interesting things that I heard is that it's very difficult to argue with a person who has got to a position in their beliefs, not via facts, and then using facts to bring them back from that is almost impossible. The biggest thing about conspiracy theories is, and honestly, I just said this to somebody, they have this big plan, they are doing this. If you are putting a collective noun uh, mm-hmm. and you say that they and the government are doing this, it's like, have you ever worked in the government? I've worked in state and federal government. You know, we're happy if we can execute the basic stuff that we're employed to do. There's no they conspiracy that's even possible. It's not possible to get all of the government to decide that we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And yet there's this belief unfounded in fact it is frustrating to me too because somehow you know i'm not for big government because they're this bumbling foolish bureaucracy that i have to pay all my taxes to and they can't accomplish anything yet on the same side thank you they're a they're able to execute this you know huge elaborate conspiracy this plan to you know lessen the population (laughs) of the world or take our guns away and i'm just like okay which is it yeah yeah. (laughs) i like that that's good That is actually an excellent point. I'm going to use that. I love that. I guess I'm I'm to the point now where that fascination of how does a serial killer think or why do they do that? Why did this person think they could get away with it? I feel like I'm beyond that point now. It's like, oh, I know why. <laughs> I know yeah. why they do all these things. It's how is our society, how is our system going to respond? That's I love where I'm that at now. Yeah. I, We're I, so on the same one. page in that respect. That's the whole kind of premise behind Well, Stop the Killing, mm-hmm. isn't it? And the last episode of yours that I just listened to was the high school or middle school girl in Texas who heard some other students saying, Don't come to school tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And she tells a couple of her friends and her mom, Hey, I think there's something going on. Yeah. And then she's literally expelled from school because she's the problem because she tried to warn people that there might be a mass shooting. And just for the listeners who are going, what the hell? She was criticized uh, by the school district for failing to go directly to the school or directly to the law enforcement. And in fact, she was like 13 or something. She brought it to her mom. Her mom brought it to the school. But because she somehow didn't bring it to the school fast enough. And she told her friends she was the problem. She was sharing. And so she gets kicked out of school. Hello, what is wrong with that? It was like one of those see something, say something, so many steps forward. And that one act in that school, thousand steps backwards. It's so frustrating. It reminded me of when, you know, anyone, you know, I was going to say woman, but anyone goes to report a rape and then they're told, well, this better be true. Otherwise, we're going to, you know, charge you with filing a false police report. And it's like, it's just really right. counterproductive to 
people reporting crime. And right. I, I, it was very upsetting. Right. Well, one in 30 women are brave enough to say anything about what happens to them. And then they get questioned and confronted. Yeah. So that that was the last episode I heard. And I was just like, how are they supposed to feel comfortable reporting something, especially if another student is planning on a mass shooting or just bullying them or whatever and they go and they try to tell someone and then they're the one the recourse is against them the punishment is against them it just sets a very bad example and precedent for students who are trying to just go to school and get an education this is a sad conversation isn't it we should be more fun I think one thing I hope that's encouraging is we're getting better and better and better from a law enforcement standpoint if I may speak for all of law enforcement are getting better accepting information and saying, we recognize this might be a piece of the puzzle. And that's because there were massive failures. You know, Justin, I lived down the street from where the Virginia Tech shooter lived. He went to my kid's high school. And two of the students who were killed at Virginia Tech went to the same high school. Coincidentally, how bizarre that he happened to run across on this massive campus, two students who he went to high school with. But he had had trouble in high school and that information was never passed on to the college. And there was a law passed after that in Congress changing the law saying that if you know about something in a school, you need to pass it on to the next school. So you collect your information about a student and you you pass it on to the next school, not to get the kid in trouble, but to be able to recognize that this kid is troubled. I mean, if I had one thing I could change it would be that instead of people saying everybody has trouble with mental health, I would change the language structure to say they are troubled people. And our job is to help troubled people. I'm preaching now. Sorry. Yeah. but No, you, it's you know exactly. And, and when it, I mean, so we pass a law now. So one school has to pass on information to another school. But if we look at the Orlando Pulse shooter, he was mm-hmm. literally trying to become a cop. And was right. kicked out of he was police his, academies. Right. And he was very troubled. Yeah, I think the El Paso shooter was working as a security guard at the time in a housing park. That's the challenge is we're not catching people who are troubled and we don't have the mental health services in this country. So we are missing a lot or we're not even missing, but there are red flags. There are signs that someone's troubled. Tons, so, tons of signs. Yeah. So you have written kind of a manual for active shooter prevention. So how did you come up with this concept? I think that if I'm not mistaken, you're talking about my book called Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis, which seems like it has such an obvious title. You know, I, I was in the FBI for 20 years and 15 years into it, I was moved from national security where I was voluntold, as we would say, Hi, we need you to go over to the White House and be on this team at the vice president's office and come up with some solutions after the Sandy Hook massacre. So I went over to the White House. We started out with the idea of what could we possibly do that would be helpful. And I'm responsible for pushing run, hide, fight out nationally. So if you don't like it, that's my fault. And I was running this program for like five years, coming up with the data to support who is doing the shootings? Where are the shootings happening? What should we be worried about? And as I gathered the data and the information about mental health issues, and I was pushing it all onto these file cards. Well, eventually I had a whole pack of file cards, like a hundred file cards. And 
then the pandemic came. So I wrote a book. Uh, Who knew? And so actually, it is kind of a roadmap and a whole bunch of other things. There's an interview with Christina Anderson, who was the most seriously wounded survivor from Virginia Tech, in her own words, you know, what she went through, how she's recovered from it, how she's recovering from it. So that's what the book is. Thank you for asking. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do. So you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital or maybe you just lost it? Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, Head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. When we talk about mass shootings, I, I know that I've heard this definition that any shooting that involves three or more people is considered a mass shooting. Is that close or what is the actual definition of a mass shooting? So funny you should say that. There is no agreed upon definition of mass shooting in the academic world, in the government world, in the private world. And that makes it very challenging because then the news guys who I talk to also too much, they are always running headlines saying, oh, there's this many mass shootings when there really isn't any definition. Now, the three or more is mass killings, which could be, you know, somebody killing somebody with a car, somebody killing somebody with a knife. So three or more is the federal definition of mass killings, but there's no federal definition of mass shootings. But the FBI keeps track of active shooters, which is shootings that are underway and police, you know, try to get there to stop the shooting. That's the name of the book. And There's a lot of research that's been done on them, and that's where the three or four or whatever come in. So the FBI says it doesn't matter whether anybody died. Somebody came to the scene with a gun, tried to kill a bunch of people. That's an active shooter. 
and they respond to active shooters in a certain way. You go to the scene, you take the shooter out, unless you can successfully catch him. If a mm-hmm. student showed up at school, pulled out a gun, and only got one shot off, he would still probably be considered a mass shooter because that we assume that Ooh. was his intent. Yes. I mean, it, you know, you're a gun owner. I'm a gun owner. How bad of a shot you are doesn't have anything to do with your intent. Yeah. The kid who shot and killed four students at his high school, at Oxford High School near Detroit, Michigan, that kid was convicted of, pled guilty to terrorism. And that was a hundred and some counts of terrorism. Those were the people who were around him. Those people were all terrorized whether they got hit by a bullet or not. And I think that's one of the waves that we're kind of going into is a recognition that when somebody draws a gun and shoots, it it traumatizes all the people around there. It's not about whether or not the shooter happens to be a good shot. I mean, I'm guessing that I'm going out on a limb here, Sarah, but I'm guessing that I'm probably better with my handgun than you would be if I handed it to you. You know, I've never shot a gun in my life, so you'd be damn right. Wow. I don't think I have. Is that weird? Wow. No, it's weird. A lot of Americans have never shot a gun, by the way, contrary mm-hmm. to the stereotype. Well, yeah, I mean, I, that is the perception from outside is that uh, everybody's down the back shooting cans off a log or something. Exactly. And, you know, Total just stereotype that, there. That, uh, that happens, though. I've shot cans off of logs. Just saying. <laughs> Justin probably has two, right? It's more uh, fun than shooting the log. <laughs> that absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. True. More fun than shooting a paper target. I think Justin, one thing that's really I think fortunate about our podcast is that I am a gun owner. I'm not looking for anybody to take my gun away. And I understand that completely. So it's not about guns or no guns. It's about keeping guns out of the hands of troubled people. And I, another dynamic I like about it is Sarah is always so surprised or impressed by the way things are over here in the States. <laughs> yeah, I am. I mean, and I grew up in New Zealand and then moved to yeah. the UK. So the difference in culture is quite palpable at times when we're having these conversations. But I think that's quite refreshing because that's how we came to the podcast in the first place was this notion of me asking Catherine, just what the bloody hell's going on? Why don't you just get rid of all the guns? Just get rid of all the guns. So we do come at it from that angle, you know, after all this time, I've realized it's so much more nuanced than that. They could literally stop manufacturing guns today and we would still have enough for generations. Yeah, yeah. we are really the largest manufacturer of guns in the world, right? Our guns are exported to Canada, to Mexico, to other countries. We have massive manufacturing here that truthfully, you know, like people are working. It's their family income. Right. New Zealand, we just export sheep. It's yeah. a lot safer. <laughs> I'm just saying. And wine. And wine. And wine. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And I thank you for that. Mm, lovely combination. <laughs> and who says America doesn't export anymore? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think people are like Sarah, if I can categorize you in one group. Oh, go for uh, it. Yeah. Sweeping brush. They just are overwhelmed in an inability to understand how Americans have firearms as part of their culture. I hear that all the time. Like there's shooting in Serbia a few months ago and a bunch of people came and and turned their guns in because they didn't want guns around. That's happened in other countries, but it doesn't happen in the States. That's for sure. No, that's true. Which actually is 
interesting that Serbia is the country that's voluntarily given up its guns because if I'm remembering correctly, and forgive me, I could be wrong, don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure that the top five countries that had the most gun ownership in the world, Serbia was on that list and it was America, which blew everybody out of the water. And then Yemen was second. But Serbia, I remember thinking, oh, that's the one I hadn't thought of as having high gun ownership. So I think it's quite interesting that knowing that they've got a lot of guns, they still voluntarily, by the sounds of it, were willing to give up. And I just don't think that's something that the American psyche is ready for or will allow. How would you guys no, take be- that? No, yeah. because we want to blow everyone out of the water. Like, literally. <laughs> <laughs> I just talked to a mom yesterday who's like, I don't know how to ask the woman who lives next door to me whether they have guns at their house. And I don't want my kid to go over there and play unless I know if they have guns and they're secured. And I said, why don't you just ask her? Why don't you just ask her? I don't want her to be mad at me. So, Justin, would you be mad if somebody asked you if Um, you have guns at your house and they're secured when somebody's sending a five-year-old to play? I mean... I don't have any kids, so my guns. Would you aren't... like some? No, uh, I've got one going big right now. Yeah, my my guns aren't left out in the open, but they're definitely not secured either. But if somebody did ask, "Hey, I'm coming over to your house. I'm bringing my yeah. kid. Are your do you own guns and are they secured?" Yeah, I would say yes, I own guns, and let me know when you're coming over because I will make sure that they are secured. I will make sure Why? they're not left out because, I mean. I would feel horrible and possibly go to prison if their kid got a hold of my gun and shot it. I'd hope I would go to prison or be charged with something, but that doesn't seem to always be something that's enforced either, is it? I'm going to add a fact. In one year on data on fatalities, there were 150 casualties accounted to mass shootings, 100 injuries, 50 deaths. That same year, 500 unintentional shootings, most of them children finding a gun, 550 actually. So, I mean, there's a much bigger risk in the United States of somebody finding a gun and an unintentional discharge of it that kills another person. I mean, there's, there's no excuse for that. Let so. me understand this, Justin. So you've got a gun and it's unsecured. Tell me the thinking around that from the outside. That seems like, is it not easy just to lock it up? When you say it's not secured. Oh, that's a great question. Justin, you answer that. (laughs) I can't understand that from the outside. Well, I actually had a friend who kept a shotgun behind his front door. I know people that do that. Wow. Okay. And and he did it because that's accessible in case that, you know, very rare occasion that you suffer a home invasion happens. Yeah, It's that self-defense concept of, I need quick access to my gun because if somebody were to break into my house, I need to be able to defend myself. Yeah, Of course, by the front door is the worst place to have that, just for the record. Yeah, because when you leave to go to the grocery store and someone breaks into your house and you're not home, now they have a gun. And you can't necessarily get all the way to your door, pick up that shotgun, and then back up and off. To be able to actually use it. Sorry, I'm just being a law enforcement officer here. Yeah. So you know, anyway, go ahead. Uh, why do I not have mine secured? Because gun safes are expensive. Uh, I'm a little lazy, but I should have them more secured. I have all but one of them secured, and that one that's not secured is 
next to my bed, which is where it should be if you are a victim of a home invasion. Now, what are the stats of a home invasion compared to that gun being used on either myself or in an accidental shooting? Oh, well, yeah. That's a- way more way more prone that that gun will never be used in self-defense. Yeah, ever. and I appreciate that gun owners don't want to take that one chance. They say, well, that's just statistics. I get that because, you know, you, every life is precious. Sarah has a question. Yeah. Yes, Sarah. I've got my hand up. <laughs> Um, from the outside of the U.S. looking at what I hear with that argument of, and it's not an argument, it's a fear-based statement that I need my gun beside my bed because I want to be able to protect myself. <laughs> my perception is that there must be a lot of home invasion. Is there a massive home invasion problem in America? No, there aren't. There isn't. There, there isn't? isn't? Okay. All right. There are not. And especially... A lot of, I would say, rural communities where they absolutely think I need my gun to defend myself more so than in a city like where I live, they absolutely feel that way. And home invasions in that area are so unlikely you could probably be hit by lightning before you would ever have one. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's incredibly rare. But, you know, so are car accidents where you get killed, right? I mean, it's just the idea of, well, if that one time, and I get that, but I think that's because I'm an American. It's not a fear that I live with that somebody's going to invade my home. Justin, what do you think has caused that in this country? Why do you think that we have gotten to the point where we feel like we have to have a gun? And I'm going to caveat this by saying, I think most people who purchase a gun thinking they need it for protection and they are not trained to use it very well. They don't use it very often. Most of the time it's locked up. They're woefully incapable of defending themselves and they are living with a false sense of security about how they might be able to respond. But yet we still have developed that in this country. Nobody, when I was growing up, you know, I wasn't alive in the fifties. Nobody in the fifties or the sixties um, was thinking, "Oh, I need to run out and buy a gun to protect my home." They were thinking, "Law enforcement will do that for me." So, what do you think changed our our view about that? Uh, I'm going to get a little deep on you. Oh, um, please do. It, do, do, do. Do we need dramatic yeah. music? It's the way the media reports things. It's the if it bleeds, it leads. Um, you know, what, what is our perception of the Middle East? Well, if you were to ask a typical American today, will you go to the Middle East? We'll say, well, why would I go there? There are suicide bombers. Or why aren't you go down to Mexico? Oh, there's drug cartels down there. Because that's all that's reported on. Yeah, and that's other true. Pe- other people look at America and they're like, I'm not going to go to America. There's mass shootings every day. And there are. Well, that's true. <laughs> there are. But is that. But you know. But the realistic point of view of what America is, is that a realistic point of view of what Mexico is? No, but it does instill the fear because they only report on the violence and the body count. Yeah, I think that's a good point, because if you look at the numbers behind that, I think, you know, four out of five home invasions occur during the day while no one's home. So when a home invasion does occur, nobody's home anyway, because that's what burglars do. They go to places where nobody is. Nobody breaks in in the middle of the night to burgle somebody's house. 
hoping that they won't wake up and pull a gun on them. And the same thing with the idea of these constant shootings that are occurring everywhere. They're not. I mean, we saw a stat the other day in one of our major cities, 70% of the gun violence in that city impacts 6% of the people, 6% of the community. So the violence is in is very concentrated in areas. And then one third really nerdy statistical thing is that as much as half of all firearms violence is initiated by domestic violence, meaning not just a wife getting beaten up by a husband or a girl being beaten up by her boyfriend, but also domestic abuse like elder abuse or children, you know, firearms violence is primarily a friend familial problem. It's not these random killings that are just covered in the news all the time. Violence that happens doesn't even get reported. Suicide is definitely a huge factor in gun violence. More More than than half half. of all deaths by firearms every year, 60%. I just interviewed a guy named Clancy Martin on my other podcast, The Peripheral. And Clancy actually had tried to take his own life a dozen times over his lifetime. And he wrote a book called How to Kill Kill Yourself. And the interesting thing was Clancy had tried drinking himself to death. He had tried uh, swimming out into the middle of the ocean. He had tried hanging himself. All of these things. Wow, that's so unusual. When the one time he bought a gun, he knew, he absolutely knew that he was not going to fail if he Mm -hmm. used it and he got rid of it. It was almost like in the back of his brain, he was like, oh, you could try to hang yourself, but it's probably not going to work. Or you can try to do this, it might not work. Whereas he knew the gun was final and he did not ever use a gun. You know, women are three times more likely to try to commit suicide, but they're very unsuccessful at it. Men are 90% successful at committing suicide because... 90% 90% of the time they choose guns. That's frightening. That's frightening that he tried all those different things. I'm glad that he heard that in himself and realized that if I have this gun, I know it's really going to work and I better be sure I really want to do this. Wow, that's amazing. That's a great book. I'm going to have to get that book. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more written for people that might be having suicidal ideation. I think it's more written for somebody like that but Mm -hmm. i highly recommend the book just like yours for anyone because i think it has a lot of stats and figures and a lot of educational use yeah and it's hard to get these stats and figures about guns because there is a lobbyist group that prevents gun studies there is a group Mm -hmm. big uh, yeah big groups uh, yeah yeah, that don't allow a gun registry because like I've bought and sold guns over my days and it's hilarious when I'm either buying or selling a gun and somebody's like, okay, well, do I need a sales receipt or something? And I'm like, technically we don't have to do anything. <laughs> technically right. I don't, this, this purchase <laughs> never happened. And in wow. fact, I could go buy a gun from a gun store and then a month later hand it to somebody and right under the law, technically that would be a straw man purchase, but yeah. If I didn't well, intend to buy that. Not if you didn't. Purposes. Yeah. Right. But, but how not you if you didn't intend. Right. Yeah. No prosecutor can prove unless it's literally I buy this gun the same day and then hand it to you. But even then, they can't exactly prove. Straw man purchases are very hard. You can't really prove that I left a gun unsecured at home and then my child got it and went and committed a mass murder. Right. 
the accountability to enforce any sort of gun law to the purchaser, you know, if it wasn't the perpetrator of the crime, it's kind of a joke, right? <laughs> so many people are surprised that when people talk about tracing a gun and they say, well, you know, they know who bought that gun. No, we do not know. What we know is who manufactured a gun. If we have a serial number on a gun, we reach out like as an FBI agent, I would do this at a scene. You know, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to call ATF. They're the skill sets in that. And I call ATF incredibly underfunded, ran for years without a director because it was blocked in Congress, underfunded, underfunded, underfunded every year. So they don't have the money in the staff to do the investigations to enforce the laws that exist, which is a huge issue. Actually, I put a white supremacist in jail once who was training teenagers for the race war that was to come. And he had on his property dozens and dozens of weapons, old and new, thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition, which is all fine. And he's entitled to do that. But you can't, under the law, train a teenager in the use of a semi-automatic weapon without their parents' permission under federal law. And that's how we got him to jail. But he had all these weapons. I call ATF. They come over. They take all these weapons. They trace them. What that means is they go to the manufacturer. They look up the gun. They see if the manufacturer is still around. And they ask the manufacturer, who did you sell this to in a wholesale? And for that initial sale, there should be a sales receipt. And then that's it. And then we literally go, I remember going in, knocking on some guy's office door once and saying, hi, last night, the gun that you purchased 10 years ago was used in a murder in Chicago. And we're wondering if you remember who you sold it to. And he's like, yeah, I really don't. You know, I was at a gun show and I sold four or five guns and I don't really know who, who purchased which one. That was it. End of story on tracing the gun ownership. And, and do gun stores even keep records? Their sales records, they must keep for a certain number of years. And if they go out of business, those sales records are supposed to be transported to ATF physically. The paper copies of the sales records are supposed to be transported to ATF. And then ATF is allowed to store them, but prohibited from digitizing them. So there's no way to actually search them unless they go. Oh and my God. Our- are you serious? Some poor bugger <laughs> is going back. Oh, somebody bought one in 1989. His last name was Smith. Good on you. Right. Go looking through that pile. That is just crazy. Yeah. So did you see that last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah. Those big warehouses with paper in them and the paper deteriorates, right? So you have an FFL and you have a shop. For 20 years, you keep this paper in a box, in a cardboard box in the back of your facility that may or may not get flooded or may or may not be burned down, you know, whatever. And then whatever the remnants of your paper product is left, if you close, you're supposed to forward that to ATF and then they stored it in a box that nobody ever gets a chance to look in either. So that just seems like an exercise and well, and nothing. But that's what it's designed to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not accidental. These laws were put into place to prevent any tracking or tracing of gun ownership because the Congress at the time did not want to do any tracking or tracing of gun ownership. And they didn't want to do any research either so that's why there was a the Dickey Amendment. This particular amendment was attached to a bill that was passed that prohibited the Center for Disease Control and Prevention from doing research on gun fatalities. 
So they were literally prohibited. It wasn't that it was an omission. When you ask about gun ownership and registration, the other part of that for someone who has an FFL is the NICS checks. When you run a background check, there are some instances where background checks are run on gun sales. And those are only in locations where somebody who has a license to sell, a licensed dealer. And if you're a licensed dealer, and this is only in the last so many years, right? You must run a background check. But the information that you put into the system for the background check is retained for and then deleted from the system. So if you want to buy a gun on First Street at the gun store, you can go into First Street, put your information in, get your gun. And many states walk away that day with that gun. And then if you go to the gun store the next day, commit a felony, the next day that felony is not in the system, you buy another gun. The next day that felony is still not in the system, you buy another gun. Eventually the felony gets into the system. You, You can continue to buy guns because the system is deleting, it's purging the information. on any application. There's no retention of any data. And and I'll do you one better. If you go and get a conceal and carry license, you get vetted to get that conceal carry license. And at that point, you can go buy a gun, at least in Missouri, without a background check. Because you you show them your conceal and carry license, therefore you now get around any sort of background check, but you could be robbing banks every day since you got that conceal and carry license. And as we know, the system doesn't update all the time. The system doesn't always red flag you, whatever it is. So it leaves a huge gap in our visibility of who should or shouldn't be purchasing a weapon. It's about as useful as a chocolate teapot. Yeah. Guys, who have the best way of saying things? <laughs> yes. Well, we are going to hit pause on our conversation with Justin from Generation Y, but never fear. We will be continuing that conversation next week. Or if you can't wait, then hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts where you can get access to the podcast not only one week early, but also ad-free and you'll have access to our weekly bonus episodes that we release every Tuesday. And of course, you'll be supporting the podcast. So we thank you. And if you fancy watching the video versions of the podcast and having access to our Discord community, then go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing, which leads me nicely on to this week's shout outs. Thank you so much to our newest Patreon members, Dennis Kesner, Gunfan LJ, and of course, our friend Charlotte Grace, who we met at CrimeCon UK. Thank you to all of you for your support. And with that, join us next week for part two of our conversation with Justin. Truthfully, I rarely get somebody online who knows how to talk about guns and can have a conversation about it. Um, Not offended at all sitting here talking to you, Catherine, by the way. Hello. (laughs) I love it. Well, it's it's just because I am a gun owner. Mm -hmm. I've been around them all my life. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. 
Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Science, 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 science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.